Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Nadia. Hey, everyone. This is Nabil. Welcome to an Equal special today about the US election. And Nadia, I do know it remains a painful time for the world. I mean, just looking at the coronavirus case numbers in the US alone.、Mm. But can I say, perhaps for the first time this year, that feels like there's some rays of hope breaking through. Just witness the power on the streets in countries around the world. We have a vaccine on its way, and let's be frank: an end to the harmful policies of the Trump administration. Yeah, and maybe I'm not as optimistic as you, but at least hopeful. And you know, there really has been a lot of excitement on the streets of DC, especially where I live. And we have sunny skies every day these days. We've already got Christmas music playing on all the radio stations, which feels a bit early, but I'm enjoying it anyway. <laughs> You know when you hear Christmas music on the radio that things are gonna be okay. A bit of Mariah Carey, you know. <laughs> Mariah always does the trick. I, I won't. I won't sing it. <laughs> no, of course not. Don't do that. But look, I'm only going to be really hopeful once we actually see the progressive policies on the table and coming through. And that's what this episode is about today, right? Just what does the victory of President-elect Joe Biden mean for the fight against inequality? Absolutely, in the U.S. and around the world. And we're joined by somebody today who can really speak to that. We're thrilled to have Professor Stephanie Kelton. She's been described as a rock star of progressive economics. Prospect Magazine listed her among the world's top fifty thinkers this year. Yeah, and she's currently professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. But what's really interesting is her ideas are shaping those of policymakers. Right? She's been chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee and advisor to Senator Sanders. She's been pushing bold ideas like the federal jobs guarantee and just generally been really vocal about inequality. Absolutely, absolutely, and she's been really best known for being a leading thinker on something called modern monetary theory (MMT). We'll talk about that in the in the interview. She's written a book about it called "The Deficit Myth," and it's really challenging a lot of dominant economic thinking about government spending. And Nabil, I know that you've been reading up a lot on MMT in preparation for this interview,、uh, <laughs> and maybe you can just stop sending me WhatsApp messages about MMT and just get it out of your system through this conversation with Professor Kelton today. You, you just don't know what you're missing out on, Nadia. MMT is really where the party's at, man. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the interview. Let's. Hey, Professor Kelton, a huge thank you for joining us. We thought, who better to speak to in the wake of the U.S. election? And you're right there at the nexus of progressive economic ideas and politics in the United States. So, a very, very warm welcome to Equals. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Stephanie. If I if I might call you that, why don't why don't we start right there then? Now the dust is settling on the election. We're curious how you're feeling about things. Are you hopeful in the wake of the results? Definitely, you know, I think a huge sigh of relief with the outcome of the election, and then you know, healthy optimism, I guess, with respect to where we go next. You know, we've got an incoming administration, and and we're beginning to see what the cabinet is going to look like. I think you know, there's a there's a lot to be optimistic about at this point. You say sigh of relief, and I think so many of us can can totally relate. Now, on equal, Stephanie, we're especially interested in inequality, and, and let's go there. One of the things a Biden administration is going to have to grapple with is this huge gap between rich and poor, in which, for example, three billionaires own more than half of the people of the USA. As we were reading up, we learned how vocal you've been about billionaires. We loved when you wrote, "No one makes a billion dollars; you take." 
a billion dollars. How do you think billionaires in the USA might be feeling now after this election cycle? That's a good question. I think, to be very honest with you, I doubt very much that they're shaking in their boots. Uh, I think that, you know, they understand that uh, President-elect Biden is talking about Uh, among many other things, raising taxes on people at the very top of the income distribution. And so to some extent, they may feel like they're in the crosshairs. Um, It's talked about increasing the corporate income tax. And so, you know, they may be feeling a little bit of heat, but I I think that deep down inside, they probably have the sense they're going to be okay. That is very interesting, right? Because despite them not quaking in their boots. At the same time, Stephanie, we are living in a political moment where there's a greater push than in decades, right, for policies to really address systemic inequalities. Now, we've heard that some of President-elect Biden's advisors are suggesting that he wants to have an FDR-style presidency, which I think is music to all our ears. But given the political realities, for example, in Congress, what do you think an FDR-style presidency might look like today? And which specific policies would look like tangible progress to you? Well, okay, so FDR kind of had uh, sort of three buckets, right? Uh, The three R's. And so with the Great Depression and the way the administration was thinking about things, it was sort of like, okay, well, we have to have something to deal with the immediate crisis, which is joblessness and a lack of income. So there were relief programs put in place. And then there were longer term investments in the economy that were designed to pave the way for the recovery phase, right? So those are two of the R's. You have relief and recovery. But then what made FDR so special is that he also wanted to tackle some of the systemic um injustices, some of the parts of the economy that were just not working and to repair and rebuild. And here comes the third R, reform the system. And so, you know, I guess the answer is to to think of something that would be on par with an FDR-like agenda. You're talking about you know, transformative investments in the economy. And and we've talked a little bit about inequality. So recognizing that one of the ways in which our economy is very broken, and you referenced that tweet that I sent some time back about, you know, the problem with the people at the very top isn't so much for me that they don't pay their fair share. It's that they keep taking more than their fair share. And they do that through a variety of mechanisms, including patents, monopolies, um, various forms of protection, trade deals, the tax code, labor laws. So FDR sort of went at all of that. And that's what a real reformist agenda would look like. And so if if we're imagining what this administration might do that's on a scale, even remotely like FDR, then I think you're looking for, you know, very uh, ambitious investments in the economy and new industrial policy, big investments in manufacturing, reshoring jobs, um, dealing with climate, doing it in a just way so that there is an opportunity for workers to transition large scale public spending programs that directly employ 
re-employ millions of workers, uh, uh, building a care economy. We should totally before long have a podcast series just about FDR and there's so much we can learn from him. But listening to you there, it seems to me that, you know, there isn't such a shortage of well thought of ideas, but there is at times a shortage of political courage. What do you think it's going to take to actually pursue such an ambitious reform agenda? You know, FTR, remember famously, you, you've got to make me do it, he said. <laughs> uh, you, the, the pressure really does need to come from the bottom. Look where we are today. I mean, it is truly astonishing that we have had no action from Congress for many months now, knowing that the relief, the, the first R we talked about, the relief package that came largely in the form of the CARES Act, that $2.2 trillion package that made it through both the House and the Senate, um, that almost all of that spending is expiring. At the end of the year, uh, income support for tens of millions of Americans, the deferrals on the debts for rent, uh, for mortgage payments, for student loan debt. So much debt has been building up behind them and the income support is disappearing and Congress has gone AWOL. They're home for the holidays. And so, you know, I think that what it's going to take is an enormous amount of pressure being brought to bear on members of Congress to get them to do well, their jobs, but the most basic kind of thing in response to what is just genuine economic pain. Um, you, you know, you turn on the news, it's impossible to miss miles long stretches of cars, families waiting in line for food before Thanksgiving. The, you know, the, the, um, eviction crisis that's coming down. I mean, there's just so much that you could just see it like a freight train running right at you. And yet, Congress is is not compelled to act. So I think, you know, it's it's going to take all of us, um, frankly, on the phones, in the, you know, in the streets, making our voices heard, because, um, you know, it's just for reasons that behoove me, they they seem incapable of understanding the the magnitude of what this economy is facing in the months ahead. Indeed, so much to be done here in the U.S. And I also want to turn to the international front. Stephanie, in the last few weeks, it wasn't just Americans biting their nails as they awaited the outcome of the election, right? It was hundreds of millions of people around the world as well, because U.S. policy impacts on their daily lives too. Change to America's foreign aid, trade, tax, and of course, climate policies could have a major impact, particularly for people in lower income countries. What do you think we can expect from this administration on the international front? Yeah, I mean, I think the the first big thing we can expect is that the U.S. will re-enter the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. There, that that is going to happen very, very quickly, and I think that the international community knows that that's coming and that they are extremely uh, happy that the election went the way that it did, so that the U.S. reengages on that front. But I think, you know, that the tensions are going to subside in many respects with, you know, trade and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's it's not going to be all, you know, rainbows and roses. There there are still differences in terms of, you know, where the U.S. wants to be on a variety of international fronts. And um, there will be challenges, to be sure. But I think that um, we're going to have leadership. Uh, again, that the rest of the world recognizes that, um, you know, the U.S. is reengaged 
internationally and will be a partner and a leader going forward. No doubt. And I'm keen for us to get into the meat of an area you've been a leading voice on, and that's modern monetary theory or MMT. One of the constraints the new administration will inevitably face as it looks to promote any number of things from universal health care to student debt relief um, is the famous response, that all sounds good, but how will you pay for it? And I understand MMT can help answer that very question. Could you um, explain for our listeners in a very simple way what MMT is all about? Well, sure. I can give you a very quick thumbnail sketch. This is, you know, what you're really uh, asking me to do in some ways is to distill a body of academic scholarship that's been built up over the last quarter of a century into something that you can wrap your arms around in a kind of simple way. So here goes. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so what we've been trying to do is to explain the nature of the monetary system. Now, before everybody gets sleepy, that's a, that, that's a big thing. And it's important, right? Because you reference this question, how will we pay for it? And you'll often hear people say, well, where are you going to find the money for that? Well, think about what that question means. When someone says, where are you going to find the money? It literally evokes in your imagination this idea that you have to go somewhere and look for a thing that exists. Like there's money. Is it under the seat cushion? Is it in a cave? Is it in a vault? Where do I find it? Who has it? Uh, and, and MMT comes along and says, hang on, you are trapped in a gold standard uh, way of thinking, right? This is a monetary system that doesn't exist any longer. We have this monetary system and we've had it really since 1971 um, that, you know, our, our monetary system changed. We have what's called a floating fiat currency and boy, is that sexy. And what does it mean? <laughs> it means that the federal government doesn't have to quote unquote, find the money that when Congress wants to fund a priority, whether it's tackling climate change or dealing with the economic economic fallout uh, around coronavirus or anything else. It doesn't go out and find the money. What they do is find the votes. If you can find enough colleagues in the House and the Senate to vote for your spending priority, the mm -hmm. votes authorize the spending and the federal government has the unique capacity to do something the rest of us can't do. And that is it can spend money it doesn't have. The government can spend money literally into existence, and they can do that because they have something we often call the power of the purse. The federal government in the U.S., in Australia, in Japan, in the U.K., in Canada, and many other countries is the issuer of what we might call a sovereign currency. The issue or the currency is like the scorekeeper at a basketball game, right? The stadium doesn't run out of points. The arena doesn't run out of points. The sovereign currency issuer can't run out of its own money. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no limits. It can spend too much. Congress could authorize too much spending. And the punishment for that is not default. It's not bankruptcy, it's inflation. So there are limits, but the limits under the kind of monetary system that exists today are in the real economy. It's in our economy's ability to keep up, right? To supply enough real goods and services to keep up with any demand the government is enabling by spending more. But apart from the inflation constraint, 
There's nothing about the government's finances or budget that are at all akin to those of a household or of a private business. Kudos to you for summarizing a lot in there in a couple of minutes. In reading your book, Stephanie, and your writings, I feel I've gone on a bit of a journey, right? From starting the book thinking, no way, surely. I'm just given how much you do challenge conventional wisdom to by the end of the book, just imagining what governments like the US, the UK and others could realistically be delivering. But Stephanie, just just to dig deeper, I mean, could you explain something important to us all, which is this, what does MMT mean for the fight against inequality? Let's think first about, you know, the existing disparity. So, you know, if I if we were on video instead of on a podcast and I could separate my hands and I could put one of my hands way up high in the air and the other hand way down low toward the ground. And I said, this is how much inequality we have today. Right. And I want to do something about that because I believe that the disparities that exist today are so extreme that they don't just undermine the functioning of our economy. They're corrosive to our democracy. So I want to address the the disparity, the inequality. How does MMT help us think differently about dealing with inequality? MMT is not using the rich like a piggy bank. Okay, MMT does not want to treat billionaires as you know the the obstacle to prosperity, the thing that you have to go through in order to get to where you want to go. You've got to go through the billionaires and take some of what they have. MMT says, no, 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 no. The federal government has far greater spending capacity than even Jeff Bezos, right? He's got nothing compared to what Congress can do. That doesn't mean you don't go after uh, concentrations of wealth and income in order to you know, deal with extreme inequities. It just means that you don't have to allow um, you know, the billionaires to... Um, be impediments to progress. You don't have to take from them in order to achieve other goals. So what you're suggesting is a subtle but significant shift in framing that we don't actually need to rely on the wealth of the rich to fight inequality. Yeah, I don't want to become dependent on the wealthy in order to fund uh, uh, an ambitious progressive agenda. I would never want the the billionaires to hold the key to prosperity. Right. And and you hinted at this earlier, but I wonder if you can just clarify, if MMT means Uncle Sam can pay for everything, does MMT then negate the importance of taxing wealth? And how do you deal with concentration of wealth then? Well, I think about pre-distribution and I think about taxing for the purpose of reducing income and wealth inequality. And I think about spending for the purpose of, you know, advancing public purpose of better funding infrastructure, healthcare, education, and so on. I don't think of it in terms of redistribution. It's just not my mental model because redistribution for me means I take money from you and use that money to fund X, Y, Z. And MMT recognizes that the purpose of the tax is not to pay for XYZ. The purpose of the tax is to remove dollars from somebody else's hands. And the question is why? Well, you might do that simply because you want to aggressively um, deal with the concentrations of wealth and income. And that, so that's the purpose of the tax. But it's just, it, it seems like a subtle difference, but I think it's really 
significant. Yeah. Absolutely. And Stephanie, a big part of me wonders if MMT is just clearing the fog about what's happening already. And maybe the right actually understand it better than everyone else. There's more we can speak about there, but we do have to draw this interview to a close. And to end, we wanted to zoom out a bit here and talk about the exciting, the growing, the increasingly influential progressive movement in the USA. And you're a part of this movement. Where do you see it going in the next few years? Well, you know, I think what's interesting is the alignment between different movement groups. Um, and, and that's where, you know, the synergies will come when you recognize that we have these intersecting crises, that we have a healthcare crisis, we have an economic crisis, we have a climate crisis, we have a housing crisis, we have a student debt crisis. And so, you know, you've got activists and movement organizations that, um, you know, evolved to advocate for each of those uniquely. But now more and more, I'm seeing, you know, the the different parties recognize that their interests are aligned, that, mm -hmm. you know, you can't, solving one problem often requires addressing the other problem or problems. And so um, I, I think that, you know, when, when, that begins to happen and you get movement groups like Black Lives Matter and the Sunrise Movement and Strike Debt and other kind of organizations aligning their movements, the Fight for 15 and so forth. Then that's where the real potential for unleashing, you know, a, a progress comes from. That's a great note of solidarity and hope to end on, and especially given your visionary work, Stephanie, is so valuable to that movement. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and we express our solidarity with you for all that you're doing. Thank you, Stephanie. It was such a pleasure talking to you and uh, learned a lot and given us a lot to think about as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Fantastic interview. I mean, where to start, Nadia? Billionaires not shaking in their boots, healthy amount of optimism, cross-movement solidarity. I mean, what stood out for you? Yeah, fascinating discussion. And, you know, I have to say, the moment that I uh, really enjoyed was when she said that people really need to show demand for progressive policies, you know, saying that the work is not done, you can't rely on the new administration or politicians to just do the right thing, because they've been elected, you have to continue to push them. And there are strong movements out there to push, we just need to really keep up that momentum. Absolutely. And I love this story that, that Stephanie mentioned, and how former President FDR, when he met with these activists, and he said to them, you've convinced me, now go out and make me do it. And I see that's a job for movements, for citizens, for all of us, really. And what's clear also to me, Nadia, is movements are saying we can't just go back, we need to go forward. And this is going to be so important, because there is this idea out there, and I do think it comes from privilege, that all was fine in the pre-Trump era. But actually, we need to be really clear that this has been a harmful economic model for decades. And we need a far more honest and critical assessment of the past if we're going to build a better future, you know? I 100% agree. And, and I mean, you know, I do think it's not just from privilege, right? It's from short-term memories and media saturation, uh, especially over the past four years. But I, I feel like 
things could easily slip back, as you said as well. And, you know, we've had so many progressive proposals coming out through the Democratic primaries earlier this year. But I worry that there's just going to be this focus on undoing the harmful policies rather than thinking about how can we really push the envelope here on, on fighting inequality. And it's frustrating sitting here in the U.S. to see how ideology gets in the way of even some of the most basic ideas, right? Healthcare for all is a debate in the richest country in the world. It's really? shocking. It's shocking. Yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of richness and money, I just want to know, did you get your MMT fix? <laughs> I absolutely did get my MMT fix and I, and I <laughs> hope you did too. You know, Nadia, it's a, it's a big idea and, it, and, it's, and it's really changing the way people think about the economy. It's also realization that governments do spend when they want to, be it the CARES Act, be it bank bailouts, be it on increased defence spending. When that happens, I see it in the UK. Nobody's asking how we're going to pay for that. So this is clearly about making the political choice to spend on the right things. And more than injecting money, this is really for me about injecting imagination into our politics. And I think that's what MMT offers. I've got to tell you, Nadia, I am a convert to it. You know, are you, are you going to be joining me? I have to say it is quite fascinating. I'll tell you what, let's just keep the WhatsApp discussion going. Fair, fair enough, fair enough, that, that we will. Brilliant. That's, that brings us to a close for this episode today. Nadia, do you want to share what's coming up next? Yes, I am really excited for our next episode. It's on an issue many around the world will be interested in, and that is the impact of the pandemic on education and education inequality specifically. So do stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Very much look forward to that. Friends out there, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Do as ever, please place a review. It helps us boost the podcast, give us a solid five stars. Do share the podcast with your friends and your family. Thank you. Till next time. Bye. Bye.